The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. The Targum. Uh, the word Targum simply means translation, and it refers specifically to the Aramaic translation of the Hebrew Bible the Aramaic translation of the Hebrew Bible. Uh, this was made necessary, uh, as I already mentioned, because many of the Jews adopted Aramaic as their language, and um, they needed somebody to explain what the Bible meant. So in the synagogue, it appears that the scripture would be read, and then there was a translator, a Maturgaman, he was called, who would... Um, basically repeat what had been read, but in effect say it in Aramaic, which involved translation and also involved apparently some measure of expansion. You know, it, it was, uh, at least for some of them, it was not a strict word-for-word -word translation, but trying to explain the meaning in the Aramaic language. Eventually, we don't know for sure when, but eventually this Targumic tradition came to be written down. And um, there were apparently several forms of the Targums, but uh, the official Targums in, uh, in Judaism were the were Targum Ankalos on the Pentateuch, Ankalos, um, because presumably a fellow named Ankalos was the one responsible for this translation of the Pentateuch. And then there was Targum Jonathan, which um, is a translation to Aramaic of the prophets, both the former and the latter prophets. So you're talking here about, you know, the... Um, uh, the former prophets are part of the historical books, you know, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings. The latter prophets are what we normally call the prophets, uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, etc. So Targum Jonathan has both the former and the latter prophets, Targum Ankalos, the Pentateuch. Now, it's much more complicated than that, unfortunately. There's something called the Palestinian Targum. Uh, there are other details that uh, we just don't have time here to deal with. And sooner or later, in some of your study, you may want to look into that in, in greater detail because um, commentaries in the New Testament frequently make reference to the Targums as providing some kind of analogy, some sort of parallel to the way in which the New Testament itself interprets the Old Testament, for instance. And um, using this material in a responsible way is not easy. But at least be aware that that, that literature um, was available. That's why I mentioned here Targumic recensions. A recension is like a revision. And uh, there, there are several forms of this. Uh, I already mentioned the Palestinian Targum. There's something called the Fragment Targum um, and other things. The Midrashim I already referred to. Uh, now you're dealing with a, a more formal type of literature something like a commentary in the books of the Bible. Now, as a rule, the Midrashim are Haggadic in character. So, for example, if you have... Um, um, by the way, this may not be... This is oversimplistic, but it may be of some help to you. Uh, here's the oral law, which we call the Mishnah. And you could say that the Gemara is like a commentary on the oral law, whereas the Midrashim are commentaries on the written law. 
that's not totally accurate, uh, but you know, if you take it uh, just as a rough guideline to help you connect things, that may be helpful. Now, I, I just said that Midrashim usually are Haggadic in nature, but that depends on the book that the Midrash is uh, commenting on. If you have the Midrash on Genesis, uh, called the uh, Bereshit Rabbah, Genesis Rabbah, or the, or the Midrash in Genesis, almost all of it is you know, stories, anecdotes, that kind of thing. Uh, there's very little there of a legal character, so most of it is Haggadic. But there's also such a thing as Halakhic Midrashim. If you have a Midrash in Leviticus, then it's not going to consist of lots of, of interesting stories, but of careful uh, debates and discussions about the meaning of of, uh, of the regulations. Uh, similarly, uh, the Gemara is mainly halakhic, but there are lots of stories here as well, so there's a lot of Haggadah as well. Um, so even though you could argue, you know, well, what's on this side is primarily halakhic, on this side is primarily Haggadic, that doesn't work out very well. And you just have to be prepared for many of these kinds of writings to have both types of material, uh, the, the, the legal kinds of issues and the non-legal issues as well. Most of these midrashim were produced quite late, you know, fifth, sixth, seventh centuries. And um, that raises a question of how much value do they have if we want to understand Judaism in the first century? And uh, that question brings us to the next uh, issue. We're going to talk about theological distinctives, and uh, we need to, uh, what we're really after is trying to understand who the people in the first century were really. What were they like? Um, and there are these two problems one that I have just already alluded to, uh, the question of historicity. And the other issue has to do with the problem of legalism. Now, you notice that I have two names there. Uh, one is Jacob Neusner, the other one is E.P. Sanders. Jacob Neusner, <clears throat> I don't know if you've ever heard the name, uh, he's a Jewish scholar who is something of a maverick, uh, he has given new meaning to the word prolific. If you go to the library, and we don't have all his books, but if you go to the library and look at the card catalog, you're going to find a stack of cards this big. Uh, he has something like the month of the book club. Um, and uh, our poor librarian particularly Grace Mullen, uh, just doesn't know what to do sometimes. Uh, I remember one day a couple of years ago, I, I said to her, have we gotten this book by Neusner? And she looked at me, not real kindly, and said, no, but it's only Wednesday. Um, I, I suspect that that somebody wrote a little program for him in his computer that takes paragraphs at random, you see. <laughs> and he says, okay, new book coming up. And then he combines all the old paragraphs at random. So that's not fair because most of what he's write, he writes is uh, uh, quite important. Yeah. Yes, that's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's really quite astonishing. Uh, but um, he is very controversial, not only because of how much he writes, but because of what he says, and even more so because of how he says it. Uh, he is persona non grata in Israel, uh, and uh, there are many, many people who uh, have been the... Um, uh, 
the object of his uh, less than generous attacks. And uh, his distinctive contribution runs along these lines. He feels that in the past, people have examined the uh, rabbinic documents, the Mishnah and the Talmud and the Tosefta and the Midrashim and other stuff that I haven't even mentioned here yet. And they have taken it at face value. Whenever there is a reference to some rabbi in the first century, people have just assumed that this is accurate and historical. Neusner said, you cannot do that. You have to analyze the documents and understand how these materials um, developed over the course of time. And he began to apply to the rabbinic documents something similar to what Bultmann had done with the New Testament, with the Gospels, what we call form criticism. Uh, Bultmann is actually one of Neusner's heroes. Uh, and he tried to do with the rabbinic documents what the form critics had done with the New Testament. And so there's a, a, uh, an identifying of little sections and trying to figure out whether it all came from the same time or, or at different portions and so on. And the end result of it all is that he is exceedingly skeptical that the material that we have in the rabbinic documents uh, is older than A.D. 70. With A.D. 70, with the destruction of Jerusalem, you have really a, 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 a significant watershed. There may be some traditions that go back prior to A.D. 70, but very few, and it is very difficult to determine whether or not uh, they shed any light on that earlier period. It raises questions, too, for example, about what I mentioned earlier, the continuity between the Pharisees who are mentioned in the Gospels on the one hand and the rabbinic Judaism that developed after AD 70. In the past, people had just assumed that this was a, you know, continuous development. Now, there are a lot of doubts about that and therefore a great deal of skepticism whether we can use the Mishnah, the Talmud, the Midrashim, and so on, to help us understand Judaism in the time of Jesus. <clears throat> now let me give you some concrete examples of what this might mean to you. In the 19th century, uh, there was a, um, an individual called uh, Alfred Edersheim. Most, most people, I think, refer to him as Edersheim. He was an Austrian Jew who converted to Christianity and spent most of his life producing works that tried to understand the New Testament in the light of Jewish documents. He wrote a very famous work called The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah. It's a wonderful work. Um, and the distinctive contribution of, of that work is that it is constantly alluding to parallels and other information in the rabbinic materials to shed light on the New Testament. Well, you see, people today, most scholars today would say that is of very little value. Uh, he is haphazardly and too naively assuming that if the Talmud says that the sacrifice was done at this hour in this way, that it really was done that way in the first century. You cannot assume that. What shall we say to these things? Well, um, it seems to me you have to have a little bit of balance here. There's a lot of what Neusner and his disciples and a number of other scholars have said that needs to be taken very seriously. It is true, you see, that even the Mishnah was not written down until the year 200. And just because the Mishnah says that Hillel said this and that, 
is no absolute proof that Hillel said anything uh, like that. It may have been a developing story that was at some point attributed to Hillel. Well, if you have to be a little skeptical about, about the Mishnah, which embodies all of this strict oral tradition, and which is relatively early, 200, what are we going to say about material in the Gemara, the Midrashim, or whatever, that wasn't written until the 4th, 5th, 6th, 7th centuries? Uh, you have to be very, very cautious about that. And I think that's something you need to take into account and appreciate. You cannot simply go to our copy of the Talmud in the, in the library, and anything you read, you can just assume, oh, well, that's the way it was done at the time of Jesus. On the other hand, I'm also quite certain that Neusner and a few others have, done, have gone much too far with this, and um, that it is simply not reasonable to think, not that Neusner would actually put it this way, but that's almost the impression that, that he gives, to assume that rabbinic Judaism kind of you know, came out of the blue in AD 70. Uh, of course, there would have been some dramatic changes and in, in, uh, um, shifts as a result of the uh, fiasco of the Jewish war. But uh, you can be pretty confident that there is enough continuity there that there's something you can do with it. Now, we don't have time in this course to you know, deal with this in great detail, but let me just say, generally speaking, that, um, for example, if there is a particular story or a particular detail that is found not just in one place, say the Mishnah, but you find the same story or the same attitude or the same approach in the Mishnah and in the Gemara and in the Midrash, the, the breath of attestation is usually a sign of antiquity. Uh, again, you want to make a distinction between things that are very concrete and specific, which you may want to be careful about, and general things such as, as I mentioned, attitudes or a particular approach to a passage in the Bible, something like that, uh, which is much more likely to be part of a, of a general and old cultural point of view. So just as long as you're cautious about it, careful, you don't try to make too much out of a detail, I think it's still quite appropriate and even necessary to make use of the rabbinic writings to help you understand what was going on in the first century. And I think in, in some of your other courses you will have some opportunity to look at, uh, at some particular ways in which that can be done. But there's another problem. This is a more serious one, and it has to do with whether or not rabbinic Judaism uh, was characterized by legalism. Now, E.P. Sanders is a um, New Testament scholar with a lot of um, interest and expertise in rabbinic and Jewish materials. Back in the mid-1970s, he published a book, this appeared in 75 or 76, called Paul and Palestinian Judaism. Paul and Palestinian Judaism is a big, fat book, much too fat. I think he could have uh, said the same thing in half as much space as he did, and I've never forgiven him for all the hours I spent reading that book when I didn't think I needed to. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. Um, E.P. Sanders had a thesis that uh, goes something like this. Protestants influenced by Martin Luther and the Reformation and all that, have totally misunderstood Judaism. 
Martin Luther went through some difficult personal experiences. Then he went to the New Testament and read some of the things in the New Testament that were being said about the Pharisees and so on. And he injected into the Pharisees some of his own struggles. But when you go through the Jewish literature, both the apocryphal and pseudepigraphic literature as well as rabbinic Judaism, you find that the charge of legalism is unfounded. That for the Jews, divine grace is all important. And we have to you know, revise completely our understanding both of Judaism, you see, on the one hand, but also of the teaching of the New Testament because we have been affected by Martin Luther. We read Galatians, and we're really reading Galatians in the light of the legalism of the Roman Catholic Church in the Middle Ages instead of what was really happening in the New Testament period. That the issue for Paul was not works righteousness in the sense of, of your own self-efforts to gain salvation. That's, that wasn't really the issue. The issue was the ethnic question that uh, the gospel was not restricted to Judaism, to the Jewish nation, but that it had a universal purpose. And that's all that's going on here. When Paul says something about the works of the law and so on, what he's talking about is, well, what somebody has called boundary markers. You see, things like circumcision and the uh, dietary laws set the Jew apart from the Gentile. And that's what, what really bothered Paul. You cannot do that. You have to get rid of those things that separate people uh, and understand the universal purposes of God. But it, it's not a question of self-effort and, and all that stuff. That's Protestant stuff may have some value, perhaps, in certain situations, but it's not what was going on in the first century. It is not what Paul was concerned about. Now, what shall we say to that? Like everything else, there's always a measure of truth in every lie. The measure of truth is that probably Christians not probably, surely, Christians, uh, have not uh, been totally fair in their understanding of Judaism. It is true that the Jewish-Gentile question was the basic issue that Paul was dealing with, say, in Galatians. It is also true that when you read uh, Jewish literature, you find a lot of concern for the doctrine of grace. No question about it that some of the writing you know, sounds perfectly pious and, and that you don't see some of the terrible things that we owe Phariseeism and so on and so forth. And that similarly, the Pharisees in Jesus' day, uh, you, you need to give them a break here. You need to understand that when the Gospels talk about the Pharisees, they're not intending, again, to give a full description of all the Pharisees. Uh, it, the Gospel focused on the areas of conflict and controversy and undoubtedly Jesus has some rough things to say about the Pharisees and, and we don't want to downplay that at all but, but we also need to try to get the whole picture as much as possible and to the extent that Sanders and a few other people have helped us to get that broader picture so much the better but part of the problem that goes on here is that in all frankness and I don't mean to sound condescending here but I don't think Sanders really understands very well what legalism is all about. You see, he's taking the term legalistic in a very crass sense. You know, this picture of, um, of a balance where uh, here are your good deeds and here are your bad deeds, and then let's see which wins out. Legalism of that type, that's, that's a caricature. It's probably true that not very many Jews thought in quite those terms, but it's also true that Roman Catholics didn't necessarily think in those terms, at least not that crassly. But legalism is something much more subtle than that, much more subtle than that. 
And uh, the problem is the, the term legalistic. You see, it's one of those slippery terms. Um, a legalist is something that is someone that is stricter than you are. Right? Uh, now, if you have some strong convictions, that's a strong conviction, and so on. But if somebody takes a stricter view of something, he's being legalistic. You see? And I think in common parlance, people use the term legalistic exactly in that way. If somebody takes a position that is stricter than mine, that's because he's legalistic, you see. Um, legalism doesn't even have to do, I don't think, with um, concern for details. That may be involved sometimes. But in a theological sense, there's something much more profound and important about legalism with regard to salvation. And I hope I can show you uh, what that involves and uh, what the implications of that are for understanding both of the Judaism of Jesus' day and for understanding what Jesus was so concerned about. But nevertheless, you need to realize that the work of E.P. Sanders has had incredible influence. And nowadays, New Testament scholars as a whole, you know, the, the majority of them, take this same approach. Even a lot of evangelicals have been affected by it. And, and you will find uh, many of them arguing, you know, uh, we've got to get rid of this Lutheran misconception of, of Paul's theology. Yeah. Well, um, I don't want to, um, you know, look into the motives of everybody. I think uh, for many of them, I, I know some evangelical scholars who um, are very concerned about the doctrines of grace and so on and so forth, but still have um, been persuaded that it is a misdescription of Judaism to view them as a legalistic works, righteousness, religion, and so on. But we'll try to uh, nuance that in a moment. Okay, so what are the basic features of rabbinic Judaism? How, you know, can we really put our finger on what is distinctive? And at this point, please keep in mind that I, I do believe that there is a strong continuity between the Pharisees we read about in the Gospels, on the one hand, and the Rabbinic Judaism that developed later. I'm not saying they're ident identical, but I think that the, the basic concerns are the same. First of all, this matter that I have mentioned before, the twofold law, that is absolutely fundamental, crucial, that at the heart of the Pharisees in the first century, Rabbinic Judaism later, you have this conception of the twofold law, the written and the oral law. Now I have there the name of a fellow named Rivkin, Ellis Rivkin. He wrote a book over 20 years ago, 25 now, called um, A Hidden Revolution, A Hidden Revolution. Very interesting. Um, I wrote a book review of that uh, for the journal, whenever, you know, late 70s or something. And um, his view, which is not um, accepted by all, but I think at least one element of it is, is clearly established. He argued that the Pharisees were primarily a scholar class. They were like scholars. The Pharisees and the scribes were pretty much the same people. That is going too far, but I think there were some connections, some strong connections between the Pharisees and the scribes. And his point is that what really made the Pharisees tick was this concern to study the scriptures, to understand what they meant, to apply it to their daily lives. And they spent all their time arguing, you see, over details and the meaning of the text and so on. And so they were a scholar class. Now, even if you don't go as far as Rifkin in, in, in defining the Pharisees that way, I think it is absolutely correct 
that this concern was at the heart of what the Pharisees were like and certainly at the heart of what the rabbis later were like. A commitment to this twofold Torah and a devotion to the study of what that Torah meant. The New Testament, when it speaks about the traditions of the elders, both in Galatians 1.14, there Paul is talking about his own um, development as a Jew. And he says, you know, I progressed beyond my contemporaries in the matters of the traditions of the fathers. The expression of traditions of the elders is found in, in the Gospels in Mark 7. And I'll talk about that passage in a moment. Josephus also speaks about the traditions of the elders or of the fathers, whatever. Um, and as I already pointed out, this oral tradition became more and more the distinctiveness of Phariseeism. It may be that if you really want to know what distinguished the Pharisees from the Sadducees, was that they, what was precisely this? Uh, remember, the Sadducees thought of the Pharisees as innovators, as people who were coming, coming up with all kinds of new ideas. You know, they're, they're, the Pharisees are interested not only in the Torah, the Pentateuch, but they add all these other books. And they come up with the doctrine of the resurrection, which is not in the Pentateuch. And angels, and that's not in the Pentateuch. And look at this, all this oral law, all this tradition, which is innovative, it's new. And uh, it is evident that our Lord's conflicts with the Pharisees focused on that. Now, I want to give you a specific example of, uh, <clears throat> of the tradition, what kind of interpretation it involved, what consequences it had. <clears throat> and I think this will really help us understand uh, Jesus' concerns. It is a ruling called the prosbul. You have it there in your outline. <coughs> the prosbul. Actually, that's the word that comes from the Greek, the prosbule. Never mind about that. It's just that that's how it came to be known. And it was attributed to, the, to Rabbi Hillel. Whether Hillel really was the one who formulated it or not, I think there's you know, good reason to think so, but it's not my main concern here had to do with a portion of the scripture, which you may remember in the book of Deuteronomy, which had to do with the year, with the sabbatical year. You know, every seven years, God said, um, the slaves would be released and all debts would be canceled. Apparently, <clears throat> at the time of Hillel, the people were not obeying that rule, that, that particular regulation. And as a result, the poor were suffering. Why? I'll tell you what was going on. Suppose that you are a person who is fairly well off, and it is November of the sixth year, and somebody comes to you <clears throat> and says, you know, I'm broke. I need some money to buy gifts for Hanukkah for my kids. Could you please lend me a hundred shekels or whatever? And then you say, oh, sure, of course. <laughs> I'll lend you a hundred shekels and then begins seventh year and I lose my money. Now, in that passage in Deuteronomy, God had said, don't you say in your heart, the seventh year is coming, and then keep from giving to your brother who is in need. Very strong words. You know, God was trying to make an impression upon the people that the debt that God had forgiven them was totally out of proportion with anything that could happen in this life, <clears throat> and they needed to learn what forgiveness is all about. 
but this wasn't phasing the people. And so they were, they were not lending money to the poor, afraid of losing their money. Hillel, he's a liberal, you see, in the good sense of the term, if you will. He's generous. He's concerned about the poor. He is really motivated by humanitarian concerns. He, he is really troubled that the poor are not getting the money that they need. And so he tries to come up with a solution to the problem. The solution to the problem was the prosbul, a regulation that uh, went something like this. Ah, that commandment in the Bible <clears throat> has to do only with private loans. Private loans. So what we can do is this. A rich person can come to the temple and give of his money to the temple so that the temple authorities will administer it as they see fit, more or less. And these temple authorities would probably lend some of the money to the poor people. But then when the seventh year comes, that does not affect that loan. They still have to repay it because it is not a private personal loan. It is a more official or public kind of uh, help. Now, to my mind, this is an extremely helpful <clears throat> example of what was going on in rabbinic Judaism and it will it can, if, if you reflect about it for a while it can really help you understand what legalism is all about what the Jesus uh, was concerned about also in his polemic against the uh, the Jews why you see what's going on here um, Hillel is confronted by sinful behavior in his society. And because this sinful behavior is affecting people in a negative way, he comes up with a way of getting around the divine instruction for good purposes, to be sure, but nevertheless, getting around it. And now, the rich people can feel a little better about themselves, you know. Now they don't feel like they're breaking a law. I'm okay. You're okay. I'm okay. <clears throat> this, um, this whole approach really came home to me <clears throat> about, um, well, I guess it's been who knows how long now. Uh, there's a book by a Jewish scholar uh, called uh, Rabbinic Judaism in the Making. Um, Goodman, Alexander Goodman. And uh, in the preface to that book, uh, he makes a very interesting statement. He says, you know, he, he says, you know why the Pharisees survived, but the Sadducees didn't, and the Essenes of Qumran didn't, whatever? Because the Pharisees really had, you know, the, the pulse of the people. They understood human nature and they made allowance for it. It's not like the prophets of the Old Testament. They were too strict. They were not sensitive to you know, the fact that people are weak and sinful and so on. And the Essenes, look how strict they were. They didn't even let you pull up that you know, donkey out of the pit on the Sabbath. But the Pharisees understood human nature. And they interpreted the law in such a way that, you know, instead of beating them on the head with a bat because they're so bad, I, I, you know, we're going to interpret the law in such a way that it makes it easier for them to fulfill the law. And now you don't have to feel guilty about this thing. And you see, that is exactly the essence of legalism. Where you don't think you're so bad. And that means that there's something that you can do for yourself instead of having to depend totally on God's grace. Now, 
uh, when I talk about Jesus' polemic, Mark 7, Matthew 5, they're really, uh, well, first of all, Mark 7, <coughs> very important passage. <coughs> and I think is, it is uh, crucial both for understanding what was distinctive about Phariseeism in the first century and also why Jesus found this such a troubling problem. <coughs> The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with unclean, that is, ceremonially unwashed, hands. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. So the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with unclean hands? Now, you need to understand that this washing of hands had nothing to do with hygiene, okay? Had to do with some statement in the, uh, in the law about the priests, only the priests, that was the only thing in mind there, about washing the wrist probably, as a ceremonial rite uh, that makes them uh, capable of performing some of their duties. Now, one of the contributions of Jacob Neusner is showing that the, one of the things that the Pharisees were really interested in was to uh, think of all the people as priests. You see, now you don't have, particularly after AD 70, you don't have a temple. So, um, what do you do? Well, everybody can be his own priest. Just because you don't have a priest in the temple doesn't mean you cannot act in a way that is appropriate to the priesthood. It isn't quite the universal priesthood of believers in the Protestant sense, but, but there was some recognition that now without the temple, things have to change. But even before then, there was apparently this attempt to, to expand the regulations that, that apply to the priest and apply them to everyone so that everyone would be clean, you see, ceremonially. It's not an Old Testament law. It's only for the priest in the Old Testament, but the Pharisees were making that a universal requirement. It is a tradition of the elders, not God's word. Jesus replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites, as it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their, their teachings are but rules taught by men. And then he says, you have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to the traditions of men. That's what I mean by legalism, you see, in the sense that for you see, we have this conception, when people think about the Pharisees, Christians, they think of people who are nasty uh, and who are always concerned about doing what God says. You know. But in a sense, Jesus is saying it's exactly the opposite. They were not nasty, by the way. Some of them probably were, but so is everybody else. Uh, they had many good motives many times. Their problem was that they were involved in relaxing the divine standard and substituting the interpretations, human interpretations, you see, for what God had really said. And I think, again, that the prosbul is a great test case of that. Then, oh, probably, yeah, probably. And he said to them also, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses his father or mother must be put to death. But you say that if a man says to his father or mother, whatever help you might otherwise have received from me is korban, that is a gift devoted to God, then you no longer let him do anything for his father or mother. Thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition, that you have handed down, and you do many things like that. That's another example. Apparently, you see, part of the command to honor your father and mother meant that you support them in their old age. Some people weren't willing to do that. So what do they do? 
Again, they bring the stuff to the temple. Ah, this is a gift to God. Korban. Well, a temporary gift. When the parents die, they get it back. And in the meantime, they say to, you know, sorry, Dad, I just can't help you because all this money is in the, you know, it's devoted to God. Um, and, and the Pharisees, in a sense, encourage, not all of them, you know, many of the rabbis encourage that kind of behavior by their interpretation of the law. But, but Jesus, you see, fundamental criticism is not you are too concerned about the law. See, that's the way we usually think of Pharisees. You're so worried about doing the things that God says, you know. That's not it. You are nullifying the word of God. And you're putting the traditions of men instead of that. The other passage, Matthew 5, is also very helpful here, I think. Um, I think it's very likely that when Jesus says, you have heard uh, of old uh, such and such, what I say unto you, that's not really a contrast between what the Old Testament said and what Jesus says. Because when Jesus quotes the Old Testament, he says it is written, not you have heard it said to those of old. Besides, at the, excuse me, at the beginning of this uh, chapter, well, in, in verses uh, 17 and following, he says, do not think that I have come to destroy. It's almost as though Jesus is saying, be careful, I'm about to tell you some things, and you might get the impression that I have come to destroy the law. No, I have not come to destroy the law, I have come to fulfill it. In fact, he says, um, anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of God. It's not that the Pharisees are too legalistic in the sense that, that they are trying to be true righteous. You are my disciples. Your righteousness has to surpass theirs. Then he gives them examples. You have heard it said you, uh, to the people long ago, do not murder. But you can't stop there. My demands are stricter than that, actually, not stricter than the Old Testament, but stricter than the way in which this command was understood by the people. Uh, you see, the, the rabbis had what is sometimes called a, a system of casuistry or casuistic system where you, know, you begin to catalog things And uh, these things are worse than others and so on. And um, part of what you, you're able to accomplish this way is to say, well, you know, maybe you did something. It's not the best thing that could do, but it's not so bad as this over here. And Jesus is constantly trying to help us understand it is that bad. It is that bad. Uh, you know, the, um, the command about uh, not swearing by what? You can swear by this, you can swear by that. Apparently, among the rabbis, you see, you have this problem. Remember, the Pharisees are very sensitive to human nature. And they find people swearing all the time. Nothing has changed, you see. And uh, the Bible says, you shall not, uh, uh, you know, you shall keep all your oaths. So what do you do now when people are constantly swearing, when they're telling a lie, or when they're making a promise that they do not intend to fulfill? Well, that's the way people are. So how can we help them here? Well, we make a gradation of, of uh, violations. If you swear by your possessions, you probably shouldn't do it, but that's you know, not so bad. If you swear by your own head, now you're getting into difficult territory. If, if you swear by the throne of God, then that is really bad. So, uh, people, you know, control themselves. You know, say gosh instead of God, things like that. Uh, so, they, they swear now by the lesser things. And because it's not by the greater things, they, it's not so bad. But, uh, God, but Jesus says, you know... 
you have to say, you, you, yes must be yes, you know must be, you can never come up with a system of interpretation that allows you to get around God's command that you will uh, keep your promises and keep your oath. And uh, the same goes for the other ones, adultery and uh, um, the question of the eye for eye and tooth for tooth. You have this concern on Jesus' part to disabuse these rabbis of their ideas that just because their interpretation softens things up, that doesn't make them right. And just in case, you see, people didn't get the point, you get to the end of chapter 5 there, and Jesus says, you must be perfect, as your Father in heaven is perfect. If you want to be my disciple, you cannot lower the standard. The only, the only possible standard is God's own righteousness and perfection. And obviously, by implication, you see, part of what's going on here is that Jesus' disciples realize that they never have an excuse for their sin and that they are hopeless unless they rely on God completely for their salvation. They cannot, there cannot be any of this business that we read about in, in, in the book of Sirach, you know, uh, the person who honors his father atones for sin. You cannot atone for your sin. You cannot do anything, really, to contribute to your standing before God. And that is what I was trying to get at when I said that E.P. Sanders doesn't understand legalism. You see, he, he's only looking at some of the crass examples of legalism. The treasury of merits and, you know, somebody's going to charge to your account what Abraham did and so on and so forth. Uh, and, and he can show that lots of Jews had a much more you know, nuanced idea of, but that's also true of many Roman Catholic theologians in the Middle Ages. But if you understand this principle of, uh, of God's standard is your standard, and how, uh, how far you fall from that, uh, then you realize that, that indeed this was a problem in Judaism, it's a problem for me, and it's a problem for everybody. It, they, you know, they didn't have a monopoly in legalism, you understand that. Uh, but Jesus' concern is that because of the whole system, uh, this was becoming a particular stone of stumbling for them. And, and they needed to, to get a, a new understanding of what God's grace was, was all about. Well, I have, uh, we'll start out tomorrow with some questions about this. Please make sure that by tomorrow, if you haven't done so yet, you read that little thing I wrote on Biblical Greek because I don't want to take time in class to go over everything. I just want to point out a few things in that uh, little article, and then I'll simply ask you for questions that you may have uh, based on that reading, Biblical Greek. Okay?